Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Happy holidays and welcome into our latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, how are you doing? Great. How are you, Joe? Doing well, doing well. And Rich Lenkoff of Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, who's also recovering from the rough Northern Illinois football Cure Bowl game uh, just a few days ago. Rich, how are you handling all that? We were robbed. I mean, it's the biggest uh, larceny in uh, in recent history. We'll cover that a little bit later on the show, but I'm I'm doing OK despite that. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. We're we're glad we've uh, got you in full capacity. I'm the moderator, Joe Brand. And as we're recording, we're expecting to hear closing arguments of the trials of Minneapolis police officer Kim Potter being charged with first and second degree manslaughter for killing 20-year-old Duante Wright last April after allegedly mistaking her taser for a gun. With that, we bring in Dr. Cedric Alexander. He's been covering this story since it happened. He's a public safety consultant and law enforcement analyst on MSNBC and friend of the podcast. Doctor, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me again. Thank you. Happy holidays to you all. Happy holidays, doctor. So cutting right to the chase on Friday when former officer Potter testified, I found it a little bit surprising. She spent a lot of time on the basis for the traffic stop. But I think she missed an opportunity to explain why she made this fatal mistake. What was your thoughts about her, some of her testaways, uh, her testimony on, on Friday? Well, it was clear she thought it was important that she had an opportunity to go witness stand and explain to the jury and the rest of the country, for that matter, in terms of how she experienced that traffic stop and what happened. You know, I have always questioned being a former chief former police officer as well, the type of traffic stops what we are making. Do we really want to make traffic stops because someone has a dangling object from their rearview mirror, such as an incense or a cross or whatever the case may happen to be? And when cities impose these types of ordinances and laws, and then you ask police to go enforce them, you're really putting them into situations oftentimes that are not even necessary. This was a case, however reason, whatever reason she felt to make that stop, it goes beyond just the stop itself, but it's about everything that transpired after. But I'm always interested in knowing why would we initiate some of these stops that we're making that always have the potential to go south and was not even really necessary in the first place. But a lot of these ordinances, a lot of these rules, a lot of these laws oftentimes that are written by city elected officials, we put our police officers in these types of situations and then they have to respond accordingly or in a way that they could have done something better. Doctor, how are officers trained to distinguish between guns and tasers? Well, clearly part of the training is going to require that the firearm is on the strong side of that officer, their right hand or left handed. And of course, then the taser will be on the opposite side, which is usually a very bright yellow in color. Uh, And during your training, you certainly learn to differentiate between the two. However, if you do not train regularly, And under stressful situations, there may be an occasion where you have, where you grab one weapon, 
when the intentions of grabbing the other, which appears to be the case here. But I've been saying for years, one thing that we're going to have to do within our police departments across this country is that we're going to have to better train them more frequently, particularly when situations are stressful, such as what, what we, we uh, all observe in this particular case here. Doctor, you might have been referencing this earlier, but I want to return to this point because it's very important. In this case, uh, race is inextricably tied to the situation. I don't think you can ignore the idea that this was a 26-year white female veteran of the police officer who stopped a young African-American male for a minor traffic violation, right? Expired tags, which she admitted she would not normally stop someone for, but for her fellow officer's concern and a air freshener. Do you think we'd be in this situation had Dante Wright been a white motorist? Well, it's hard to make that judgment because we was not in the mind of that officer. But of course, uh, considering the climate that we're in today, today where we're seeing the death of uh, black men and women at the hand of police officers certainly continues to greater, create a great sense of pause. So we don't know what was in her mind, but here's what we can uh, in some type of way speculate. Part of the problem in many communities across this country, we have elected officials had make these rules up, such as dangling uh, object from your rearview mirror. It could be your cross. It could be an air freshener. It could be something very simple that really is not in anyone's view. But if you make it an ordinance, you make it a law, and then you ask police officers to enforce it, you're putting in them in these unusual type of situations that they don't need to be in. I can't tell you what was in the heart of mind of that police officer, but I can say this, in the climate that we're living in today, where you have African-American men and women being killed by police is a far higher rate than any other population. It continues to create that pause and concern, but you've got to be able to look at each case individually. And there are some things here that could have been different. Well, not only that, I know Tina's got a question to uh, to end off on, but but really quickly, I was just talking to a judge about this on Friday. It's an amazing situation where you could have Kyle Rittenhouse, a young white male who walks down the street with an assault rifle after having just shot three people, killing two of them, mm. and asks to be arrested and mm. can't literally can't get arrested on the streets of Kenosha. Right. Yet you've got this young black man who was shot and killed for an incredibly minor violation. So that's just a statement rather than a question. Um, but it's a sad state of affairs. And I'll, I'll, I'll direct you to Tina for a last question on an entirely different topic. So doctor, um, clearly there's been a significant uptick in carjackings and smash and grab crimes. Mm -hmm. What do you think are the reasons behind the uptick in these crimes? I think there are a multitude of reasons. And we can't blame it all on COVID either. And even though COVID may have influence on unemployment, kids being out of school for over a year, all those things that we can maybe tie to that, right? But also think we have a criminal justice system. You certainly right, do right there in Chicago and some other states across this country as well that have become very relaxed in the whole bail process. Now, let's be honest. We know that the criminal justice system is not always fair to all people. We try to make adjustments in the system. But I think this bail reform is going to have to be revisited because there are a lot of dangerous people out there 
who have created a great deal of hurt and mayhem that are still on our streets. You got them there in your city and there in other cities across this country. And because we got to lock up these real tough, hardened criminals, we have to send a message. But when you have a bail reform system that allows people to walk sometimes in felony cases, when you have a system that no longer put emphasis on uh, uh, a community reform and it's all on police reform, those two entities are going to have to both both reform. If we're asking police to reform, we got to ask communities to reform as well, too, because there's issues on both sides. We know police hold power. We know that they have the authority to make decisions in situations that it can affect our freedom and our life. But communities also have a responsibility when they have people in their community that they know are not doing what they should be doing. We have fine ways for those folks to be reported. It is not a tough situation here. But to your question here, I'm going to be perfect honest with you. We got a bail system that is very lenient. We got to keep these hardened, violent criminals off our streets in this country. Because you can go to any police department today, large, small, liberal or far right, doesn't matter. There's 18,000 of them out there. What you will find is that there are officers, good officers who are truly trying to do the right thing and keep cities and communities safe. But they got to have help from our criminal justice system that has in many ways allowed some of these hardened criminals to return back to the street. And they become very problematic. And the data will point it out. They get out and they return back to the same lifestyle if they're released way too early, which we see that uh, continually uh, in this community or in this country, I should say. Again, that's public safety consultant and MSNBC law enforcement analyst, Dr. Cedric Alexander. You can follow him on at C Alex underscore law on Twitter. Doctor, thank you so much for rejoining us here on the Legal Facebook Thank podcast. you. Thank you for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com.
Moving on to the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio, we move to the topic of the parents of the Michigan school shooter, James and Jennifer Crumbly, being charged. With that, we bring in Evan Burnick, a professor at Northern Illinois College of Law. Professor, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for inviting me here, Rich. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, Professor, as Joe mentioned earlier this month, the prosecutor in the case, uh, Karen McDonald, filed involuntary manslaughter charges against the Crumbly's the Crumbleys, the parents of the shooter, uh, the suspected shooter, of course, um, no parent has ever been convicted of homicide in a school shooting. Why is this such a rare move? It's a rare move for a couple of different reasons. The first is that it is generally a difficult thing to hold parents accountable for the voluntary acts of their children. Uh, this is true both in the context of criminal law. It's even true in the context of civil law. For example, there was a, a Washington case involving a gun that accidentally discharged while in a student's backpack. And the Washington court that considered uh, whether the parents could be held civilly liable in that case for their negligence ultimately concluded that they could not be because there was just too much distance between the negligent act and uh, the accidental shooting. There have been cases in which parents have been charged in connection with school shootings, but never with anything um, like a homicide offense, which carries up to 15 years in prison. And keep also in mind that uh, the alleged shooter himself is being charged with an adult. And if convicted on all charges, he will spend the rest of his life in prison. So we're talking about a lot of potential prison time. So, Professor, you argued in a Washington Post piece that holding parents responsible in this way could easily lead to more racially disparate prosecutions at a time when Black Americans are already disproportionately represented in the U.S. Mm -hmm. prison population. Can you please explain further? Sure. I should probably say that as a starting point, uh, whenever I'm confronted with a novel exercise of prosecutorial power or a novel expansion of the criminal law, I start thinking in terms of racial disparities simply because the expansion of the criminal law um, has consistently over the course of really centuries redounded in a disparate way on the lives of black Americans. That being said, uh, my particular concerns here are animated by uh, relatively entrenched implicit stereotypes about parental negligence on the part of black Americans uh, that have manifested themselves in a variety of areas of criminal law to the way that um, uh, uh, pregnant black women are more often charged with neglect and with drug abuse as a consequence of uh, what are called fetal protection laws uh, for the degree to which there are uh, ordinances that target black youth fashions like uh, sagging ordinances that hold parents responsible, uh, including criminally responsible for failing to ensure that their kids don't dress a proper way from curfew laws uh, that require parents to keep their children in school uh, out the streets after certain hours that re uh, reliably have a disparate racial impact. So when I see a potential expansion of the criminal law that carries uh, up to years in prison um, in the in an area where that is uh, that draws upon racial stereotypes, 
I get very concerned and I wonder, or, and the purpose of the article was really to, to foreground the potential disparate impacts of something that springs from, you know, a, an understandable moral outrage, but could have unintended consequences. Professor, speaking of racial stereotypes, we uh, cannot ignore that issue in the trial of Kim Potter. We just discussed that earlier with another guest. I wonder if we could get your opinion on how race is in, involved in that case, uh, whether the jury that is currently deliberating her fate comes back and decides whether this was a mistake or not. I think many would argue, as we discussed a few minutes ago, that you would not have been in that situation that the officers would not have been even involved in that traffic stop had Dante Wright not been an African-American motorist. What are your thoughts on how race is intertwined with the Kim Potter trial? So the fact of the matter is that the Supreme Court in a case called Ren v. United States effectively blessed the racial profiling of black motorists by saying that in Fourth Amendment cases, uh, whether somebody has been unreasonably stopped by the police is not something that turns on the motivations of any of the officers involved. So what we're looking at in this trial, as in a variety of contexts, is a bunch of ways in which the criminal legal system um, either outright endorses or simply doesn't take account of race in a way that has a uh, predictable racial impact. And I stress that this can happen in ways that don't necessarily uh, come as a consequence of anybody's malicious intentions, but because of reliance upon very thoroughgoing, very entrenched, implicit stereotypes that affect the way that we process the world. And one of the things that I try to do as a legal scholar is to ensure that people are aware of these things and that we don't build a system that can reliably produce racial disparities despite very good intentions. So, Professor, with regard to the Crumblies, you argue that there are other alternatives like holding them civilly liable and enacting mm-hmm. safe storage laws. Can you elaborate further on those alternatives and any others? Sure. I want to immediately stress that any alternatives that I'm talking about here, I don't provide as you know complete solutions to the problem of mass shootings. And I would stress that even convicting the parents um, as a consequence of their negligence wouldn't provide full satisfaction to the victims of this horrific shooting. That being said, Michigan legislature was um, only this past spring considering legislation uh, that would have Um, provided for criminal penalties for parents that failed to secure their weapons in ways that led uh, to either intentional or accidental shootings on the part of their children. And the reason that I think that those laws are a more promising solution, or at least um, do not pose the same risk of harm, uh, uh, racially disparate harm as the as the uh, as the expansion of involuntary manslaughter, is because there's a very close connection between the culpable failure to secure the weapon and the underlying um, violence that we're trying to prevent. The concern that I have about involuntary manslaughter expansion is that it can creep into the principle that that parents can be held uh, liable for the crimes of their children can easily creep into other areas. Whereas this, there's a very tight connection between the specific parental failure and um, the tragedy that results. 
They also tend to carry less severe penalties. We're not talking about 15 years in prison. We're talking about um, fines and, uh, and lesser penalties. Last question here on Legal Faceoff, Professor. Your new book is entitled The Original Meeting of the 14th Amendment. It argues that the Supreme Court has long misunderstood or ignored this amendment's key clauses. Can you briefly explain why you think that and what our listeners can expect in this excellent new book? So what really inspired this book was the conviction that the history that I was making my way through of the 14th Amendments, um, despite, you know, the gallons of ink that have been spelled on what's probably the most litigated clause in the Constitution, uh, has really not been told in important respects. Specifically, we, uh, Randy and I talk about uh, the abolitionist history of the constitutional theory that was embedded in the 14th Amendment, the degree to which um, it was born of struggle, born of a mass popular movement that made the Constitution, that transformed the Constitution in the image of the of ideals that were held by beleaguered radicals that ultimately became um, the source of a clause or, and a, a, an amendment that um, measured up to the abolitionist higher, highest ideals. So it's a story about turning what had once been an instrument of racial domination, the 1788 Constitution, into a tool that could be wielded against white supremacy. And it was imperfect. It was compromised in many ways, uh, including because the Supreme Court systematically interpreted its most liberating clauses to do not very much. But it's it's there and it's a resource that people who are seeking racial justice in our time and place can draw upon. Uh, and it is a monument to a history of a, of a successful struggle to change the law in a racially egalitarian way. Again, that's Professor Evan Burnick of Northern Illinois. Be sure to check out his book, The Original Meeting of the 14th Amendment. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today, despite the trying time of having to deal with the injustice that the Northern Illinois football team had to endure <laughs> over the past couple of days in the Bahamas Bowl. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, I unfortunately caught only the tail end of that game, but that was enough to break my heart. <laughs> rough, rough ending to catch. We've still got plenty more on the Legal Faceoff podcast. Stay tuned. We all know the legal world is complex and high-pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving on to the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. And the first lawsuits have been filed against Travis Scott by the families impacted from the deadly events that occurred at the music event Astro World. We have a personal injury lawyer who represents the family of Rudy Pena who lost his life, Valerie Fisher. You can find out more about her and her firm at vcfisherlaw.com. Valerie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Appreciate it. So Valerie, as Joe mentioned, you represent the family of 23-year-old Rudy Pena, who was one of the 10 attendees who lost their lives at last month's Astroworld Festival and have filed suit on behalf of the family. 
Can you please tell us more about this lawsuit and what the latest is with the investigation around this horrible tragedy, as well as some of the other lawsuits that have been filed in connection with this event? Um, sure. Uh I work with Rosendo Almadas from the Almadas Law Firm, and they are lead counsel on this case, and I'm his co-counsel. Um, so I've been invited to uh, participate, at, and it has been my honor to do so to represent Rudy and his family. Uh, we filed on November 8th the first draft of the petition, have since filed an amended petition to include more defendants, um, and the event, as you know, happened November 5th. Uh, so uh, we filed a negligence and gross negligence lawsuit. There have been... Uh, Hundreds, I believe, at this at this point that have also been filed. Uh, there are, as you know, um, only a, a limited number of deaths that occurred. I believe we're at ten um, now, and so uh, Rudy is is our client. Valerie, expand a little bit about the theory that you're pursuing uh, against the defendants in this case, and uh, whether you think that'll be made easier by the sheer number of people involved. Um, you mentioned ten deaths. Obviously, there was thousands of thousands of people attending this concert, uh, meaning, you know, that many potential plaintiffs. What are your thoughts on what you're trying to prove and how you'll get there? Sure. Um, our theory is that the named defendants and if there are more that are discovered during uh, the course of the investigation, you know, we would respond appropriately by further amending our petitions, uh, fail to provide a safe concert going environment, fail to provide a, a safe um, experience, fail to provide adequate security personnel there at the event, um, fail to provide the proper uh, safety measures among themselves as well. Uh, we heard in various statements that have been made by authorities, by uh, other named defendants that kind of said, oh, well, there was a breakdown in, in communication or there wasn't any communication. So that would be a very important part of our theory as to the lack of planning involved in an event that's now in its third year um, and who was aware that there was a lack of planning, um, who should have been made aware and who failed to take action as a result. And, and it's kind of a moving target at this point uh, because we're still in the investigatory process. So, Valerie, about a week ago, Travis Scott gave his first interview since the tragedy to radio host Charlemagne the God, and he claimed that the interview was his effort to try to help the victims and their families start to heal. Um, the nearly hour-long interview has been criticized by many. I know you've been interviewed talking about this interview as well. Um, and the victims' families have said pretty consistently that it's hard to watch and that it's done nothing to help them heal. Can you please tell us a little bit more about this interview and why it's been so controversial? To speak on behalf of Rudy's family and in the conversations that I've had with them regarding this, like you said, nearly hour long interview that they themselves weren't even able to completely endure. Uh, there was just a sense of, even if what is in his heart is that he is truly this remorseful, it doesn't make it better. And if that was his intention, I can understand that. Um, however, th at the end of the day, for these families and for in particular Rudy's family, it just didn't do that. Um, they felt that there was a skirting of responsibility. Um, it was mentioned repeatedly by him that this wasn't because it was a Travis Scott show. This wasn't because it was my show. So even in an effort to show his uh, remorse, there was still that distancing. Um, Understandably, there's a lawsuit pending, however, from the perspective of a grieving family whose loved one is now dead. That didn't resonate. 
Valerie, without previewing your strategy in advance of uh, a trial in this case, obviously it's particularly difficult, I imagine, for your clients to endure this, given that from your perspective, I'm sure, as of many that we've covered on this show, this could have been prevented. And to the same point, this is not the first time, right? Travis Scott has been involved. This is not opinion. This is documented. He was uh, charged on two prior occasions with being involved in similar incidents where he was inciting a riot at a concert. We've talked in this show about some lyrics that uh, he wrote that also seemed to incite a riot. Um, how much of that will be part of your case? But more importantly, as importantly, how difficult is that for your clients, the victim's family, to endure knowing that this is not the first time it's happened? Um, I'm glad that you mentioned that because that is certainly something that they uh, pinpoint in, in our discussions about how they feel in reaction to this interview, um, in, in reaction to the situation, is that there is a history of inciting and encouraging um, an environment where raging occurs. And, you know, I imagine that there will be more detail that goes uh, into defining what that is. And, and uh, Travis Scott himself was asked a question regarding raging and said, well, it's more like what I see at my shows. So how really can you say then that you're surprised that uh, this level of violence occurred and, and um, danger happened as a result of this kind of environment that you sought out, uh, that you outright encourage. And uh, the family just cannot get away from feeling as though there is a definite level of responsibility when that was your intention um, in the show. How is the family uh, doing, Valerie? Obviously a tragic loss to the family, but how, how are they doing? They are... Um, they're struggling in their grief. They're a very tight knit family. Um, the, the siblings just, you know, they, they're there as a, as a pillar of strength for their mother. Um, during this time, she's, she's grieving greatly right now. They just visited uh, the Houston site of the memorial several weeks back for the first time. Um, and it was a very difficult experience for all of them. Um, we are still in the course of our investigation and discovering things that have also been very difficult for them to understand. We have a witness uh, who came forward who was with Rudy in his final moments, literally holding his hand in the bottom of a pile of people. And uh, those details, as they've been coming to light during our independent investigation, have just been so difficult for the family to, to digest. Again, that's Valerie Fisher. Find out more about her and her firm at vcfisherlaw.com. Valerie, thanks so much for the insight today. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. 
In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. And our two guests today, we start with founder of Comey and Associates, attorney at law, Stephen Comey. Stephen, thanks so much for being here today. Hey, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. And Kara Orbell, host of the Going Places podcast and yoga instructor. Kara, thanks for jumping on with us. Thanks for having me. Okay, Rich, a topic that we have been talking about throughout this podcast of former Minneapolis police officer Kim Potter uh, showing some strong emotions while on trial for the death of Duante Wright. Yeah, the jury should be deliberating shortly. uh, Closing arguments for today up in Minnesota. Um, Lots of different, uh, I think, elements to this case. Um, Again, she did a poor job, I thought, in not taking the opportunity to explain why she made this mistake. I think she spent a lot of time on Friday explaining why she made a traffic stop, but she didn't take the opportunity to explain what's the most important part of this case, which is why she mistook her taser for her gun. Um, that's a pretty big mistake. I also think, as we just discussed with Dr. Alexander, that you know race wasn't mentioned too much, I think, to, in the trial, but it's something that is going to be in the forefront of the jury's mind. Um, again, you know, when you see uh, the disparate treatment that a Kyle Rittenhouse gets, for example, running down the middle of an American city carrying a rifle after having shot and killed two people and can't get arrested, asking the police to arrest him. Yet you see people like, you know, George Floyd killed on the street and uh, Dante Wright killed for uh, relatively minor traffic violations. You can't help but think that uh, people are being treated differently. Uh, who are stopped for these these crimes. Tina, what are your thoughts on what the jury might do or her testimony or, or any aspect of this case? I mean, I would say just to respond to your question, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here and I'd love to hear what our guests have to say on it. But I think the reason why she didn't elaborate on the mistake, Rich, is because there's really nothing for her to say that's going to be helpful to her case. I mean, she clearly is very distraught by the turn of events um, and I don't think that there's a good reason why she mistook her, her gun for her or, or thought that it was a taser and it was really her gun. Um, you know, there's been a lot re- written about what exactly went down in the car and how her partner, um, you know, was really that had there been had he had had he tried to drive off that her partner would have probably died because of the way his body was positioned in the car at the time. And she mentioned looking at his face. And she said that she'd never seen a look like that before. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's pretty clear that, you know, there's that she's guilty here. It's just, it's a very unfortunate set of circumstances. Steven, you represented many high profile criminal defendants and uh, the standard traditionally, or maybe uh, conventional wisdom was that you don't put your client on the stand that can only serve to hurt your case. The standard now seems to be, at least in high-profile cases like Jussie Smollett and Kyle Rittenhouse and the Ahmaud Arbery case, that we do have to hear from high-profile defendants. Otherwise, the jury might not uh, sympathize with them. What are your thoughts on that theory 
whether you would have put her on and how she did. Well, your statement's essentially correct. It's not a good idea to put a, a defendant on the witness stand because they are emotional and they don't hear the questions that are being asked and they can't process the question in the emotional state. So it's like they're in the middle of arguing their innocence with the jury and not hearing the lawyer who's standing in front of them say, you know, tell me about this. And they'll interrupt the lawyer in answering the questions and so forth. So they generally have poor performances. However, self-defense cases require the defendant to explain self-defense. And the uh, principal reason to put the officer on the stand was for her to explain um, how she was emotionally fear in fear of her life. And that's why she grabbed the weapon. There was no explanation of that. And so it's a negligence case. She's being charged with criminal negligence as opposed to intentional homicide. So she didn't form the intent to kill somebody in advance. And so it had to be defended on a negligence access. And I don't believe the defense put forward a defense to the negligence claims that the state will be superior in convincing the jury beyond a reasonable doubt. Cara, uh, the jury in this case, again, on Friday, heard some very distraught testimony from Kim Potter. She was very tearful, obviously was having a very difficult time. We also saw a similar reaction from her on the body cam video. In the Kyle Rittenhouse case, we also saw him break down. Maybe I would submit very uh, much less convincingly. I thought that was a bit of an act. We didn't see video of the Justice Smollett testimony, but by all accounts, he maybe did a worse job in presenting to the jury. How influenced do you think you would be by someone's emotional state? Or would you be able to separate that if you were on the jury and just look at the hard evidence? I think... um... In this case, there is so much emotion to it that I think the jury could be easily swayed by the emotion. But given the fact that there's so much frustration now with the Kyle Rittenhouse case, I think that the jury is going to be a lot more putting a lot more pressure on the mistakes she did make and whether she was consciously grabbing her gun or not. I think that's the biggest part of this case that's being overlooked. Was she being intentional when she was grabbing the gun or did she actually mistake it for did she actually mistake the taser for a gun? Tina, the survivors of the tornado that ripped through a Kentucky factory are suing, saying employers wouldn't let them leave as the storm was approaching. Yeah, Joe. So it's been a few weeks now since those horrible storms that blew through the Midwest and caused a bunch of tornadoes and killed dozens of people across a number of states, including Kentucky. Um, and in the wake of that storm, as you mentioned, um, there was a Kentucky candle factory, which is the Mayfield Consumer Products Candle Production Company where eight workers were, were killed and survivors have filed a lawsuit saying that many of them tried to get their employer to let them go home early and that they weren't allowed to do that. So the lawsuit was filed last week um, and it accuses the candle company of violating Kentucky OSHA standards by keeping the employees at work despite the danger. Um, apparently, according to some of the employees, they were threatened with termination if they made the decision to leave before the storm hit. Um, the suit is seeking com compensatory and punitive damages. And the only plaintiff that's been identified so far is Elijah Johnson, who apparently was working the night shift that night. Um, and apparently the lawsuit's being filed on his behalf, as well as on behalf of others who are similarly situated, 
who don't want to identify themselves because they're worried about retaliation. It's actually really a miracle that not more people were killed and many officials who were looking into this in the wake of the storm and the um, devastation said that because there were 100 people working at the factory, they fully expected at least 70 people to, to die in this incident. Um, but, you know, not surprisingly, a spokesperson from the company said that employees were free to leave at any time. And the spokesperson denied um, that there would have been any sort of retribution or retaliation in the event people did leave early. So, my guess is that this case will likely settle, but I think there's probably going to be at least a few more of these that we're going to see in the days and weeks to come, Rich. Yeah, we'll see one inevitably against Amazon as well. Six people died when the Amazon uh, warehouse in downstate Illinois was uh, affected by the tornado. And I think that's an even stronger case for the plaintiffs because we've seen, of course, the last few years, an increase in litigation and, um, in fact, legislation being proposed against Amazon and similar companies for putting the company's interest before workers. And uh, critics of Amazon point to this case as well as an example of Amazon not caring about their workers and forcing them to work when they had plenty of notice of this uh, impending tornado. So, you know, as someone who represents a lot of employers, uh, on the one hand, I understand that it's a natural disaster. and There's only so much responsibility that the employer has. On the other hand, if it's true that, of course, that they had, you know, three hours notice and uh, mandated that their employees stay there, that's going to be troubling for them. Um, Cara, what are your thoughts on, on this, uh, this lawsuit? This lawsuit reminded me a lot of the movement that's happening now with workers' rights. I think it's a really big thing in the media right now. Um, it reminded me of there's a big trend on Instagram where people in labor are texting their bosses and figuring out what to draft like in an email to their bosses. So this is a huge problem in the fact that people's human rights are being overlooked to get work done, basically. And I think it's really frustrating as a young person entering the workforce to see that during a tornado, you're not allowed to leave your job. And I, I really hope that this causes change in the workforce. Steve, what are your thoughts on uh, these lawsuits? Well, it's not so simple because uh, all of the uh, law is called an act of God. So acts of God are on a different plane than acts of man. And uh, the tornado is clearly under the history of the United States legal system, an act of God. So now we go to the individual employer. I think there are probably solid construction lawsuits for not building tornado sh shelters inside the buildings. I think that uh, the negligence was in the construction of the building where you have a clear case of not building the building for the tornado alley that you have in Southern Illinois in that area. And I think there's a, a clear question about uh, what, was the protocol of the company for a tornado, because that would be something they would publish in a handbook and so forth. And so until we actually see what comes out of discovery, we're not going to know whether or not there's a clear case for the workers, depending on what protocol exists in the handbook and what the drill was for tornadoes, because in that part of the country, the employers have tornado drills. Got a free PSA to all the listeners out there. Do not sell your Eric Clapton CDs on eBay. It can apparently cost you thousands, Tina. Yeah, this one is a real head scratcher. And I have to tell you, as a very big Eric Clapton fan, I just I'm disheartened by the following story. So many of you may have seen the headline a few days back 
when news broke that Eric Clapton had sued a German woman who had listed one of his CDs um, for, sale, for sale on eBay over the summer. As it turns out, it was a CD from the late 80s that her late husband had purchased at a department store. Um, and all she was looking to make was probably about $11 if she was lucky on selling the CD. So somehow um, this CD, which was a bootleg unbeknownst to her, um, got the attention of Eric Clapton, who ended up suing this woman for copyright infringement because it was a bootleg. So as it turns out, she ended up not selling the CD. The post on eBay came down within about a day. Um, she claimed that she didn't know it was a bootleg, especially because her husband bought it at a department store. So I think she assumed, as I think many of us would, that they're not selling bootlegs at department stores. And now she owes nearly $4,000 in court costs. Um, the German judge in this case last week sided with Eric Clapton and ordered her, um, the woman is named um, or known as Gabrielle P., um, and the court also ruled that if she tries to sell the bootleg, which I don't see why she would at this point, given everything that's gone on, but the judge did say that if she does try to sell the bootleg again, she could face up to six years in prison and a fine of nearly $300,000. Now, on principle, she's planning to appeal again to the highest European court. Um, when asked for comment, Eric Clapton refused to comment. Um, on his business manager said, Germany has a huge counterfeiting problem. And over a number of years, Eric Clapton has pursued hundreds of these cases of bootlegs um, under local and routine German copyright laws. Um, as we all know, Eric Clapton has been under fire himself lately um, for his very, an very vocal anti-vax stance. He's written songs, I believe, with Van Morrison um, that are anti-vax songs. Um, and maybe he's looking for some cash through these cases because he's had to cancel a lot of tour dates because he won't play at venues that um, have vaccine requirements. Wow. Yeah, where to start? So <laughs> he, he needs money. Eric Clapton needs money because he's not touring. So he's going after an individual German woman for a CD. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think that's what's going on, Rich, because I can't make sense of of any other reason why he'd go after her. I mean, this is so crazy. I'll tell it's you, that I, hope, crazy. I hope Clapton's not listening because I have a uh, an old banker's box full of old bootlegs in my storage <laughs> unit that I can't make. I, I can't take myself to throw away. Uh, there's not a lot of Clapton in there, but, you know, bootlegs were a thing back in the day. Uh, you would trade them and you would, you know, they, it was an illegal economy for sure. But. Who would have suspected that uh, the great Eric Clapton is sitting there wherever he is trolling some individual woman trying to get damages from her? Kara, do you even know, uh, have you ever heard of this gentleman named Eric Clapton? And uh, are you now checking your uh, supply of, of bootlegs to make sure that someone more of your generation doesn't sue you? <laughs> I have heard of Eric Clapton, but I'm going to be honest, I have very limited experience listening to him and i would say my generation should be nervous for all of the illegal youtube downloads of music that was popular in the early 2000s i think if they start going after us a lot of us are going to owe a lot of money because I mean, we does laugh not, about it yeah. we're laughing about it but steve and, and and tina i mean this tina this is your area but mm -hmm. steven i mean it's no joke piracy is obviously no joke and i think what this lawsuit's mm -hmm. getting at is 
artists continue desire to protect their intellectual property in a time where it's readily available. I mean, kids these days are pirating movies all the time that are first run releases. And that's a real thing. And that actually has, you know, damages. So it's a funny story, but I think it does get to the point of artists trying to protect their intellectual property. Well, it's a warning. It's a warning because even in the United States, we're always in U.S. District Court defending locals who have um, helped themselves to the trophies on the Internet that people have stolen and uh, get a uh, summons from Hollywood brought into the U.S. District Court, charging them with uh, having these versions. And then we have to go in front of the judge and explain why they shouldn't pay three hundred thousand dollars to the artist for having this in their possession and having the downloads. And of course, with the uh, internet, the, the uh, plaintiff is able to figure out every time you download something, the subpoena. So they're able to find out whatever came through your IP address. And it's extremely accurate in their ability to prove the downloads. So I would say it's a warning to anybody to be very careful to what you purchase on the internet when it comes to intellectual property. That's Joe, why you're, I, a little, you're a little young for Clapton, Joe, but do you have a favorite uh, Clapton song that you've researched before this podcast? <laughs> I, I do know Eric Clapton aside from research, but I'm just going to go with the hit and uh, cocaine. That's uh, but I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Goodfellas. So that's why I, I always. Yeah. You said it, you said it. Goodfellas, the best use of an outro in music history. <laughs> oh yeah. His yeah. use of the piano part of uh, Layla. Layla. Yeah. Yeah. That's oh, that's that's what I'm thinking of. Okay, yeah, yeah. meshing together two things. I oh, I I, uh, <laughs> I only uh, get my music from things safe like Napster and LimeWire anyway, so that's where I obtain most of my music. Uh, try to keep up with all the numbers here, but Beverly Hills 90210 alum Shannon Doherty was awarded six million three hundred forty six thousand after winning her lawsuit against the insurance company Rich. They refused to pay for repairs on her home that was damaged in the California fires back in 2018. Yeah, the amount that was awarded covers uh, home damage, personal property, emotional distress and attorney's fees. Uh, This was a state farm situation. And what I thought was interesting about this case, aside from, you know, reviving one of our favorite shows to talk about 90210, Tina, was that, uh, you know, she is a breast cancer survivor and uh, State Farm accused her of using her condition as a legal strategy to garner sympathy in the lawsuit, which, you know, did it doesn't generally play well to a jury when you're accusing someone of using their cancer as a as a legal strategy. Yeah, I was a little surprised by that, frankly. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I don't think she was using it to garner support. I think, you know, she decided to file this suit and, you know, she moved forward with it. The fact of the matter is she's been very sick for a long time. And, um, you know, I think, you know, putting aside whether she did or didn't, people try to put forth the best case possible, right? I personally, I like Shannon Doherty a lot. I'm a fan of hers. I loved her on Charmed um, many, many years ago. And, you know, it's uh, it, I just hope that, you know, she's doing as well as can be expected, given her condition. Stephen, we talked uh, earlier about using sympathies and using emotions before a jury. Uh, you know, nothing wrong with using everything you can to try to convince a jury that you're right. Right. As a as a seasoned litigator, I'm sure you'd agree with that. Emotion has its place in the courtroom. 
You just has to be at the right place, the right time with the right issue. Uh, however, what the subject we're talking about is bad faith on the part of insurance companies. And the cases are legioned about bad faith where they refuse to pay. And that's why we always have to tell the client, get a public adjuster. Don't rely on the insurance company's adjuster to go out and adjust your claim. And you're, you can be shocked at what's in your house and how valuable it is. And it has to be properly appraised and the claim properly presented to the insurance company. I whacked the Erie insurance company for their failure to pay on a uh, burglary that was caught on a camera in a store in Joliet. And they refused to pay on that on virtually the grounds that uh, the people were Ill illegal aliens when, in fact, they were American citizens. So, you know, it, it's any excuse not to pay the money. And you need to have a public adjuster and an excellent attorney to present the case so that you can recover when you're in court for bad faith on the part of the insurance company. I think I have an idea for our next guest on the Legal Faceoff podcast. Kim Kardashian has passed the baby bar exam, which is the first step for hopeful California lawyers looking to learn through an apprentice rather than law school, Tina. Yeah, so, you know, obviously Kim Kardashian is a favorite of LFO. We've been following this story closely now for quite a while. Apparently, fourth time is the charm for Kim Kardashian, um, who failed the baby bar exam three times in two years. Um, I believe we covered the story the last time she took it when she last failed that she was running 104 degree fever and had been dealing with the onset of COVID um, and that being the reason why she had not passed the last time. So, you know, for those of our listeners who didn't catch the story before, the baby bar exam is the first year law student's exam. Um, and people who have to pass this include those who are, quote, reading the law, as is Kardashian, um, who's not going to law school. Um, she's been working on her legal studies for the past two years through an internship with Dream Corps Justice, which is a prison reform organization. So the baby bar has a very low pass rate. Um, it's only about 21% of all the test takers who have passed it over the last couple of years. Um, now she has to continue her studies and she's got a second bar exam that she has to take. When um, she posted this on Instagram and was interviewed about this, she said that she knows that her late father, the famous Robert Kardashian, who was OJ's, um, who was one of the uh, team members of the OJ Dream Team lawyers. And she said he would be very proud of her. And that while, although he would often make fun of people who didn't pass the bar the first time around, that she knows that he would have been her biggest champion. So I am happy for her. Now she can uh, continue on her business endeavors and continue her uh, legal pursuits, Rich. She's going to continue to study and let's see what she does with the second exam. Uh, I'm proposing a mashup of uh, Judge Judy and keeping up with the Kardashians, um, keeping up with the legal Kardashians maybe. But yeah, to think of all the time we wasted in law school, many of us, you know, actually learning that pesky thing called the law and taking a bar, regular bar exam. We could have just taken the baby bar. Who even knew there was such a thing? Only in California do you not have to go to law school and you can do an apprenticeship. By the way, when you talk about an apprenticeship, you know, we used to have that in Illinois. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Julius uh, Lucius Eccles was the last one who read the uh, 
law like Abe Lincoln and was in the Merchant Marine in World War II up in the crow's nest looking for German submarines with a button to push a bell and alert the whole ship. And uh, he came back from the Second World War and sat down and learned at the foot of a lawyer and then passed the bar and became one of the most famous criminal lawyers in Chicago in the 1950s. Well, uh, I don't know if Kim K is going to follow that path, to be honest. But I think the logic <laughs> is that you're actually doing a lot of hard work as a apprentice or when you're doing this, uh, you know, lawyer work. I don't know that Kim K, by the way, Kara, is actually sweating out hours in the library and doing research, <laughs> and, you know, carrying carrying uh, legal briefs to court. So I'm not sure she is meeting the intentions of the California baby barber. What are your thoughts on this? That's what I was thinking. I know she's so busy with her divorce with Kanye and her new relationship that uh, I don't know how all of her side hustles will help her be a good lawyer. I mean, I think her fame and fortune and all the things she's doing could actually get in the way of doing a good job in court. Well, she has her kids, too. Let's not forget that yeah. she has children to take care of. So. Yeah. Well, she posted maybe the best ever bar study photo of all time, which is <laughs> in a bikini with some kind of floppy hat by the pool, reading that bar book for the fifth or sixth time. As a student, that's not what it looks like. I have to tell you, it's not that glamorous. <laughs> well, just like Halloween and Thanksgiving, we like to get in the holiday spirit with Christmas themed lawsuits. We've got many more lined up, but we're going to start with the Jewish parents suing the school due to the arrangement of decorations outside of the school, Rich. We got a couple of funny ones to talk about, but this one is, you know, semi-serious. The allegation is that uh, if you put up a Christmas decoration, uh, it's only fair to give equal time and space to another religion's um, uh, decoration. In this case, as you mentioned, it was a woman in Carmel, California, who tried to add an inflatable balloon decorated like a menorah to the tree lighting ceremony at the school, her third grader attended. The school turned it down and a federal court judge agreed. This is basically a reiteration of case law we see almost every year or two. Um, and the basis of the uh, decision being upheld is that there's a longstanding case that says that although Christmas trees once, I'm going to read it, although Christmas trees once carried religious connotations, Today, they typify the secular celebration of Christmas. This is a quote from a 1989 Pennsylvania case that, again, said that a Christmas decoration is generally not considered religious but secular. But I have to say, as a, I really don't say this as a Jewish individual, but I say this as an objective legal analyst, that I do think there's merit to those lawsuits. You know, when you have only one religion um, that is being uh, highlighted, even though Christmas has become basically, in many ways, a secular celebration. If you're a young Jewish person or a Muslim person, or even more relevant, an atheist and doesn't you don't believe uh, in in religion, but you see the school, which may be a public school, which means the state is supporting it and the state is paying for it, identifying only one religion, that I think inevitably makes you feel like a lesser person or maybe a lesser celebrant. And I just don't think it's right to mix up, you know, I, I think it's against the constitution to mix those up. The court obviously disagreed, but Tina, where do you come down on this, on this issue? You know, I just disagree with where the court came down. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't see how a Christmas tree, um, no matter what kind of lights you put on it or whether you allow people who are of other faiths to put ornaments on it that represent their own religion and beliefs. 
I don't see how it's secular. Um, and I'm, I happen to be Catholic and I'm married to a Jewish man. And we had this debate early in our relationship about whether a Christmas tree would be something we'd have in our home. Now, he ultimately came to terms with the fact that he actually loves the Christmas tree, I think, more than I do, probably because he didn't have one growing up. Um, but at the end of the day, I identify it with a Christian holiday, regardless of whether the lights are white or, you know, you have or if you have ornaments or don't have ornaments. And so I disagree with where the where, where the court came out on this. So, Stephen, many would accuse us of making a, a snowflake argument that, you know, uh, you can't say Merry Christmas to people anymore, that you have to use the politically correct term of, uh, you know, happy holidays. Is this really an unconstitutional uh government endorsement of religion, or is it just a case of, you know, political correctness run amok? Well, um, I happen to believe political correctness is sometimes overboard. Uh, All my Jewish friends take off days for Rosh Hashanah and the holiest days of the year. And unfortunately, we don't close court. So we're without a third of the court present because everyone's off celebrating their holy days. Uh, And then on the other hand, we used to be closed for Good Friday, both in federal and state court. And uh, someone went down to uh, 219 South Dearborn, filed a lawsuit and opened stuff on uh, Good Friday. And now both courthouses are open when there's nobody who wants to be there because other people are off doing other things. So I think it would be a good idea if the General Assembly got together and passed the bill that includes everybody's holiday so that everybody has their day. And we don't have these days when we come to court and there are not enough judges to cover the whole building and do all the business of the court. So I'm more of the point of view that we should accommodate people for the reality of what we deal with when we go to court. Gotcha. Kara, jump in on this one. I think um, the biggest part from the school is they tried to incorporate other cultures. They were singing Hanukkah songs in the choir, but they called it Israeli songs, which is completely wrong and incorrect. So I think having a knowledge and an understanding of other cultures is really important and making an effort to include that. Even with they tried to inflate the Hanukkah um, menorah, even having that is so important, I think, to young cultures and exposing kids to different cultures. And that's what I had growing up. So I think that's really good for children. We've got a handful of other holiday lawsuits. I personally like the one of the guy who claims he was entitled to an extra $500 after getting basically $7,000 worth of free jewelry, Rich. Yeah, you got to You got to incorporate the tax, Joe, always. Don't forget the tax. Um, Yeah, you know, we always like to end our holiday shows with some wacky lawsuits. Inevitably, every holiday, including Halloween, Christmas and Hanukkah, includes some, you know, rather amusing lawsuits. A couple of the ones, you know, they always fall into a couple of different categories. People doing stupid things around the holidays, failing to take responsibility, letting alcohol, for example, at Christmas parties cloud your judgment. We see those kind of lawsuits all the time. We also inevitably see lawsuits by neighbors, like in some of the stories we covered um, in the past. Neighbors suing neighbors for outrageous light display, lights displays. There's a case going on right now in Timley Park uh, here in Illinois that's similar. Um, we also frequently see, one of my favorites was one we see often where uh, inmates are suing, right? These poor inmates. That was my favorite uh, too. <laughs> in Maricopa County, the very well-known Sheriff Joe Arpaio was... Uh, blasting Christmas music to 8,000 inmates. And they claimed that that was a violation of cruel and that was cruel and unusual punishment, a violation of their constitutional rights. 
and they claimed uh, $250,000 in damages for listening to Christmas music. Now, listen, we've all had our share of Christmas music, and it's going to continue for a while, but uh, is that worthy of a quarter of a million dollars, Tina? No way, folks. No way. I don't don't know about a quarter of a million dollars, but I got to tell you, when I've been in Uber's, the last several weeks, I, I'd say a good 50% of the Uber drivers are blasting Christmas music. And a couple of times I've had to tell them to either turn it down or turn it off because not that I'm, you know, being the Grinch or anything, but it was a little loud and everybody and their brother now is doing Christmas music. And some people should not be doing Christmas music. Let's just put it that way. So I get it. Yeah. Steven, there's inevitably lawsuits like we talked about dealing with people being overserved at holiday parties. In fact, you know, over the last few years, one of the reasons that a lot besides COVID, one of the reasons that a lot of Christmas parties, even before COVID, were on the downside is because employers don't want to assume the liability of their employees going to Christmas parties and getting drunk and doing things that may be sexually inappropriate, might be harassing, might also get into, you know, car accidents on the way home, and the employer ends up being a target. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, I couldn't have my annual Christmas party this year because there are not enough employees to serve the guests their alcohol. Right. So I had a I had a different problem. Uh, but it's an insurable risk. An employer can to get an insurance policy, a social host liability policy, and purchase it if they want to have it. And even a homeowner who's going to have people over can purchase a social host policy and pay for it and be uh, covered. Uh, but the, the other thing that you can't get covered for is sexual harassment or any of those uh, what are obviously crimes in Illinois. And so uh, that's not an insurable risk. Uh, but the holiday party is afoot every night. I see it on Rush Street. I see it going strong in the bars on Division Street and also out uh, in what's now the Fulton Market District. So Christmas parties, the, the, the population has busted out and started to drink again. And that's going to cause the drunk driving arrests to go up. And even though we came down from 61,000 before the pandemic down to about 5,000, I think we're going to start going back up. All right, Kara, thoughts on these kind of lawsuits? And also you'll start off our uh, round the horn opinions on favorite or maybe least favorite Christmas songs. (laughs) I would have to say, um, with first of all, I'm not a huge fan of Christmas music, so all of the lawsuits, it is cruel and unusual punishment for me. Um, but this one in particular with the parties, I thought it was interesting how like most employers do offer to call people to drive them home. And most people I've heard of in Wisconsin and in the UP have designated drivers to drive people home from parties, probably like 16 year olds who can't be uh, legally able to drink. So I think that's a good way to keep having parties because I think they're important, but also prevent these types of accidents from happening. All right, Tina. So none for Kara because she hates holidays. <laughs> She's the grand chair. What's your favorite or least favorite uh, holiday song or both? So I'll give you a couple of my favorites. Um, obviously, Do They Know It's Christmas? Amazing song but also the late Chris Cornell's version of Ave Maria is really awesome. So if you haven't heard it, I would definitely check it out because um, I'm a huge Chris Cornell fan and you realize what a remarkable talent he was on hearing him sing a song like Ave Maria. It's amazing. All right. Very good. Steve, favorite uh, or least favorite Christmas song or holiday song. 
Oh, I have a whole host of them because I like listening to them at midnight mass. So I like, uh, you know, joy to the world. Come all ye faithful. You go down the whole list. I love them all, you know. And then, of course, there's always Mariah Carey, who's looking for the best Christmas gift ever. Yeah, I like Mariah Carey. That's a good one. All right, Joe, are you a Mariah Carey fan? Do you, are you buying the McDonald's uh, Mariah Carey holiday meal? Uh, I don't know about the McDonald's holiday meal. I'm a big Mariah Carey Christmas song fan. I'm a big Christmas music fan. I'm totally against Tina and Kara here. Uh, <laughs> I've got two different Christmas playlists on Spotify. Um, and to name a couple, I do like Mariah Carey, obviously the, the hits all I want for Christmas is you, but also her rendition of baby, please come home. Uh, Bruce Springsteen's, uh, Merry Christmas, baby. Of course, uh, Santa Claus is coming to town as well. Uh, I got I got a whole bunch of others. But yeah, I, I'm a big, big fan of Christmas music. I'm probably driving my wife nuts. I keep playing it pretty much every day. Don't miss out on her double cheeseburger special at McDonald's next week. Then they give them away. <laughs> that, that sounds like the Joe Brand special. I mean, that's normally what I get. The, the double cheeseburger, maybe a four piece chicken nugget. My uh, my two favorites are, of course, the immortal grandma got run over by a reindeer, which is a uh, fairly frightening tale of uh, reindeer drunkenly running over, of course, grandma. And then I love uh, Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC uh, off the uh, very special Christmas album. Number one that features the Merry Christmas baby that you mentioned. Um, but I'm I'm done with Christmas songs. I uh, they're like basically nails on a chalkboard for me and. <laughs> Again, not just because I'm a Jewish individual, but we'll take it from there, Joe. Well, I, I, I blast it the day after Thanksgiving, but then the day after Christmas, done. It goes stowed away with all the other decorations and everything else. And your uh, bootleg Eric Clapton CDs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I just I just pulled that down from eBay as we were uh, talking about a different topic. Big thanks to Stephen and Kara here on Legal Grab Bag. Also to our earlier guests, Dr. Alexander, Valerie Fisher, uh, and Evan Burnick and to our producers, Yvonne Barbosa, Emily Flores and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share the Legal Faceoff podcast here on WGN Radio. Please give it five stars. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. Happy holidays and the Legal Faceoff podcast. We'll talk to you in 2022. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.